Noah Wilson-Rich, PhD, is co-founder and CEO of The Best Bees Company, the largest beekeeping service in the U.S. He is a 20-time published author and three-time TEDx speaker. He's on a mission to improve pollinator health worldwide as a means to support our global food system and support the transformation of urban areas from gray to green. No Wilson Rich and Best Bees, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you so much for having me. What drew you to this magical world of bees in which sustain life on this planet? You tell us about your journey and why they remain an endless fascination for you. You know, I, I was originally drawn to bees because they're social creatures. And as humans, I always wanted to know about ourselves and how we can be our healthiest selves and our healthiest society. I knew that we were not so able to test things relating to health by doing things like studying how one person who gets sick in Times Square might infect other people, like we could do that with non-human social organisms. And at the time in undergraduate um, at college, I was working with a wonderful professor named Becky Rosengash, and she studied termites. And she taught a class called sociobiology, which just opened up my mind to the wonderful world of social animals. And I worked with her because in part, she was just so enthusiastic about her work. And she was the rare non-white male faculty member at my school. And I was so drawn to her. And I didn't know much about termites at the time, but we worked together. And she showed me that they really helped keep one another healthy despite not having doctors and hospitals and nurses and pharmacies. And I thought that was remarkable. And so the work that we did with termites, she showed me could be extended to other organisms like bees and wasps. And all of these organisms have been around for so long. Bees especially have been around for 100 million years. And so I really wanted to continue my work in graduate school so that I could better understand how a beneficial organism like these pollinators and bees stay healthy and what lessons we as humans could learn from them, despite humans not having been around for 100 million years. And uh, the lessons just continue to amaze me. I would love for us to be as cooperative as the honeybee. I hope we can also go into the different pollinators as well. In terms of combating climate change, I wish that we were a little bit more cooperative. So just into your background, you're a behavior ecologist, and then you make this leap into founding Best Bees. It was kind of a gradual thing. How did, how did that begin? So I continued studying bees in graduate school from 2005 through 2011. And the economy, if you remember, around 2009 was not great. And it was pretty challenging to get grants as it was, and certainly to get faculty positions on the tenure track where we really needed to wait for somebody to die or retire in order for a job to open up that many new graduates would descend upon. So when the bad economy hit in the last recession, times were tougher than ever and more competitive than ever. And we had to get creative in order to continue this research, which was really by that point in how to save the bees. Because what started as an interest in what humans can learn to be our healthiest society really shifted around 2006 when bees started disappearing from colony collapse disorder. 
they weren't even dying anymore. It was this vanished body story. And it really made people start to wonder, why are bees important? Why are we talking about them? Where does our food come from? And you know, what is a pollinator? Do we really care about the disappearance of insects overall and not just honeybees? So I knew the work that I was doing into bee health and how to save the bees and what lessons we can learn. I knew that was more important than ever. And so I started to think outside the box and I started a phase Facebook page at the time. When I was getting ready to graduate, I called it Best Bees. I said, we're selling beehives and I'll volunteer my time to manage them in exchange for research funding. Does anybody want some bees? I thought it was quite silly at the time. You know, I was picking up teaching courses in biology and animal behavior and evolution. I was bartending at a business school at the time. And I, I just said, you know, I have nothing to lose. Let me try to find this way to get more beehives out there. So those can be my research specimens. And that's also a way to get a crowdsourced funding model in place to fund this research when the other traditional funding models were not available to me. And the first year I thought, if I can just sell 20 beehives, then we can do this. We can have enough power for our research and we can get enough funding in to continue this. So that first year in business in 2010, we sold seven beehives. And then in 2011, we sold 12 beehives. Now, by the third year in 2012, we were up to 65. And I knew at that point we were really onto something. So 12 years later, we're now a real business. We're a multi-million dollar you know, national beekeeping service in over 20 cities. We've got one of the largest data sets on bee health that exists in the world using standardized beekeeping practices. And we're off to the races. It's really so innovative because there was this natural affection for bees. I mean, you said some people were feeling like, oh, do we, I don't, I don't really understand how people wouldn't understand the importance of bees, but there is this natural affection and people living in cities really want to be a part of it. What I didn't understand is you're selling beehives that helps fund the research. You also do research into not just honeybees, but other pollinators. So explain that a bit because there's, I think, 20,000. There are 20,000 or so species of bees out there, and this is just 10% of the pollinator species overall. There's an estimated 200,000 species of pollinators that are hard at work every day all around the world, visiting flowers and providing food for not just as humans, but for many, many organisms that rely upon these plants, these angiosperms that produce fruits for food. And it also helps these plants propagate. You know, that's really how seeds are spread through organisms that eat fruit that contain the seeds to spread these plants that really help the carbon cycle. I mean, these pollinators are incredibly important for the survival of our planet. And so for humans studying the health of pollinators, it's nearly impossible to study all 20,000 species of bees at once due to limitations in funding and bandwidth. We don't have enough workers and scientists to study 20,000 species of bees or 200,000 species of pollinators. So instead, what we tend to do is we focus on one indicator species or a model system. And honeybees are really the gold standard for that, for understanding bee health and pollinator systems, because humans have been working with honeybees for so long, you know, over 10,000 years, we see evidence 
evidence from cave art, and that existed about 15,000 years ago in parts of Spain. We understand our agricultural system, you know, from around eight, 9,000 years ago. It's estimated in Egypt when we started to put beehives on rafts going down the Nile River. At least 4,000 years ago, we're seeing some modernized agriculture in terms of crops that required pollination at scale. So we have this very deep history between humans and honeybees, and that gives us an extended understanding about the health of these organisms over time. And certainly today, people understand beekeeping as a common practice. If we, certainly city dwellers, are not familiar intimately with being beekeepers these days, we can recollect stories across cultures across the world where everybody relates to, oh, my grandfather was a beekeeper or a person down the road was. And so there's a deep ingrained connection between humans nowadays and honeybee health in ways where we're just getting started to understand the many other amazing species of bees that do exist. So we make this assumption that what's happening with honeybees is indicative of what's probably happening with other species of bees and other pollinators too. And it's really just a starting point. So right now we work with honeybees. We make hypotheses based on those uh, data that are coming from beehives. And then we wanna further test those and see if those assumptions and hypotheses really do extend to other species of bees, or if they don't, how we can tweak those so that we're setting the stage for future study about those species of bees. Yeah, so you're talking a lot about how bees and humans have connected over, you know, all of history, but how has your research showed you how bees can also prompt community building within cities? Mm, with Honeybees as an indicator species for the health of bees overall, for how we can stabilize our food systems in the face of pollinator decline. It's really interesting where we can look at a network of honeybee hives that are connected. It's something that we've been doing with Best Bees since 2010, where we started to put beehives out there and then using software that our um, software engineers write the code for, we have our beekeepers trained to do the same practices every time we visit a beehive. So today we've got beehives in 26 cities. You know, we've done maybe 70,000 visits in the same method. So our 100 beekeepers at scale across the United States are entering data in a smartphone app that we write the code for. And that's building community in a way that's connected to science because these beehives are at people's home gardens. They're at business rooftops. They're at any spaces that were otherwise underutilized. And now there's a new way to get connected to bees because before a beekeeping service industry existed, you really had to be the beekeeper. Or maybe one could open up their property to another beekeeper putting their beehive there. But this is a third option with a beekeeping service that can install a beehive. That owner of the property keeps all of the honey, they get to enjoy all the benefits of having the bees, but they also get to participate in a bit in a, a citizen science approach. So their beehive is contributing data in a way that's very community driven. And that data is then connected to the network of data yielding beehives. And so one of the projects that we've been able to innovate upon that network of beehives is called Honey DNA. And that's when we look at samples of honey and we're looking at the plant DNA genome within the honey. It's a bit of a forensic science approach. 
And so, for example, in Portland, Oregon, we see that a lot of honey is from roses. And so by understanding the identity of the honey and revealing the true plant origin, it really helps Portlandians understand we are the city of roses. But now also this rose honey, it's not only contributing to science, but it's helping us taste our own landscape in ways that we're doing at scale, like the honey locust tree is common uh, in New York City and sumac in New England and even in uh, New Hampshire in the fall, we see holly, you know, and we know the holly plant is something that can bring a lot of holiday cheer. We've worked with the World Bank in a couple of countries around the world from um, Benin to Haiti, so that we can put in really a grassroots economic improvement approach so that by understanding the identity of a community's honey, they're able then to sell a special product. If you think about Manuka honey that comes out of New Zealand, Manuka honey is very expensive. And the government of New Zealand has a trademark. They own Manuka honey so that even when the Manuka plant is grown in other parts of the world, like the United Kingdom, and even when honeybees are visiting the Manuka plant to make Manuka honey outside of New Zealand, it cannot be called that because that is intellectual property from that country. It's building community through identity of understanding what their land tastes like and connected to their economy by being able to sell that honey for a little bit more on the market. Furthermore, what we like to do at Best Bees is we have a related nonprofit called the Urban Bee Lab. And on our website at urbanbeelab.org, we share the results of our honey DNA research freely from anywhere in the world. Anytime somebody buys one of these kits, it's kind of like Ancestry DNA or 23andMe, you know, a genomics test, but for the first time ever with plants to better understand our environment at a local community level. Anybody can visit urbanbeelab.org and scroll across the world and see what type of honey is produced from anywhere in the world where we've received these results. And then they can bring those plant lists to a local plant store, let's say, and have a conversation and say, well, what could we promote? Which ones of these plants do you think that we should select and plant more of so that we can further provide food and forage to our local bee community? Maybe those are native plants. Maybe those are particularly culturally relevant plants to local recipes, or maybe it's relating to the marketing, like in Portland, Oregon, or in New Zealand to help build some local community pride while also helping to feed the bees. Yes, I, I love that. And so in terms of growing native plants, I know that you fundraise through providing hives, but that also supports then the native bees. And just explain, because so many of us just think about honeybees, but the, they're quite different. Do you provide little hotels for that? Or is there other ways that we could get involved in promoting, you know? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, honeybees are like the teacher's pet. You know, if you think about a classroom with 20,000 students in it, and you have that one in the front row raising their hand, that's like, the honeybee, right? What about all the other ones? There's so much more information out there. The challenge for those is they don't have as loud of a voice. Those other bees are often solitary bees versus honeybees that live in a society of tens of thousands of individuals per hive. The solitary bees are typically nesting in cavities. They're cavity dwellers. And so they're what I call cryptic. They're hard to find. You don't just go out there and see all of these solitary bees. So they're very mysterious and they're, they're really in trouble. If we don't see them, then how can we know how they're doing? 
And how can we better understand their important ecological role? Just as flowers that we can see are extremely morphologically different and beautiful, and they have different shapes and colors and scents and patterns, so too are the pollinators that have co-evolved to match their morphology. Flowers exist because they're a sexual reproductive organ of plants, and the pollinator that comes to visit them has co-evolved has morphed along with that to fit in it like a, a hand in a glove. And so we wonder often if there's a flower with a deep corolla, with a very deep flower, there's probably a hummingbird or some other long-tongued bee that matches it so that it pollinates it in a very precious, precise way. For the research that we're doing, how we extend honeybee research and honey DNA research to other species of bees, it's something that our research and development department has a lot of fun with. We think about protecting pollinators and bees in two ways. One is with foraging habitat and the others with nesting habitat. And so foraging habitat, that's the flowers and nesting habitat, that's the houses. So with foraging, let's start there. With honey DNA, we're starting to get a very specific list of plants that bees are pollinating. Now, yes, we get this information from honeybees in no small part because they produce honey that gives us the research specimen to then look and do a deep dive into all the plant DNA, to do the genomics analysis within the honey to reveal what are all the plants that the bees are going to. Now, once we have that list, we now know all of the plants that we can go visit. We can promote those. We can plant more of those. We can protect and preserve those plants. Once we've started to plant more of those, whatever's important, maybe native, uh, culturally relevant to a particular group around the world, whatever makes sense, you then go and find those plants and you can either sit by it for let's say 10 minutes a day, like the Great Sunflower Project does. It's a wonderful citizen science project. And the Great Sunflower Project has folks sit by the same flower, the same type of flower, 10 minutes a day with a pen and paper and a folding chair, and you just count how many bees you saw visit it. And you can report that online so that collectively around the world, it's community reported data for tracking pollinators. Now, what we're doing next is collecting those plants and we run another genomics test on it. But instead of looking at the plant DNA, this time we're looking at the pollinator DNA. So again, a forensics approach, but we want to measure how many different species of pollinators have visited that particular type of plant. This is going to be an entirely new scientific approach. This is kind of what's under the radar next in, in cryptic pollinator research for discovering those pollinators that we don't see every day, but we know are out there. Many areas of the United States have over 300 species of native pollinators that live there, but only maybe five of them are visible to any of us at any time. I mean, how many pollinator species can one really name? This approach is going to give us a list of all those species that have visited those particular flowers that we know bees have visited. We'll get a list of those animals. And then the next step is understanding their nesting habitat. So moving from the foraging habitat and how we can plant more flowers 
and then understand which species are visiting them, we then want to see where those species live so we can make sure that there are homes for them. So nesting habitat really comes in many different forms. We can install bee hotels. That's a very common trend these days all around the world. It looks like a birdhouse, but with tubes. The trick for a bee hotel is really making sure that those tubes can be cleaned out annually or replaced because they can build up disease. There's a particular type of fly that can become a parasite on bee larvae if not properly managed and cleaned out. So for a bee hotel, it's very fun to install those around a property with different tubes of different entrance sizes. There are companies like Crown Bees that we love that we work with at Best Bees. So they supply these and you can also get them at Costco or other supply garden stores. And what's fun is once you set it, you can then go and check it. It's another really interesting way to set up an experiment on a property with different heights off the ground, different colors and different sizes of those tubes. Once you have a creature that's moved in, one of the technology pieces that I love to use is called Google Lens. So the Google app that's free, if one opens up the Google app at the right side of the search bar as a camera, and you tap the camera and you can help identify any species of insect that you might see. iNaturalist is another wonderful citizen science software tool where people can report a photo of a bee that they see to help get it identified identified, and also report that it exists in their environment. And that's really the best that science is doing these days for a citizen science community-driven approach to investigate and to protect and preserve all of the species of bees that exist that we're really just starting to break the ground to understand. Yeah, so you've also talked about bees as this microcosm for understanding the health of the biodiversity diversity of nature in general. And so how does your research change our collective response to climate change? So understanding bee health is something that we know is really important. And it's one of the things I love about this current moment in time. It's very different from when I started my career and people would come up to me and say, Noah, why bees? Who cares about bees? Are you really working with bugs? <laughs> We're so much further past that. We've taken a few steps, actually. So from why bees to what's happening to our bees to I know that bees give us food. Where does our food come from? That kind of triggered the farm to table movement of the mid to late aughts. And then what was really fun about the early teens and kind of continuing today is this rooftop to table food movement where people are reimagining cities and they're rethinking, what are we doing with our rooftops? What was there before this building went up? Was it habitat or was it just a wasteland before? People are starting to understand that this gray to green movement, it's a trend that's here to stay. It's something that we see happening in Europe where green rooftops were once a luxury, but now really since COVID happened and everybody locked down, green is not just an amenity anymore, it's a new mandate. And it's the new demand from residents in a building when they're looking where to live and where to work. They want a green space for a break room. People want to be able to grow carrots for their families in an apartment rooftop rather than having just a rooftop that's off limits. There's no reason why anybody should have underutilized space anymore. You can have a pollinator garden in a shady area. Bees can warm themselves up and they can cool themselves down. And so there's a lot more that we can do when we reimagine these underutilized spaces. When we think about the scientific value of these ideas, 
all we have to do is connect the work that we do with science. This is going to become a lot more common. So for Best Bees, we've been linking all of our home garden and, and business rooftops to this network with a data yielding beehive. And so what that does is connect snapshots in time with a larger data system. Let me explain again with honey DNA, for example, when we're seeing a particular type of honey come from Portland, Oregon, we'll go there again. Uh, let's say in the summer of 2020, we have, let's just say, I'm making this up now, but 80 different plants were detected. If we then look at the summer of 2021, same thing, Portland, Oregon, same beehive or same community beehives, now we have 89 plant species. And the community starts to realize, huh, we can listen to the bees and understand what plants to promote more, maybe on vacant rooftops, maybe in abandoned plots of land that um, we can work with the government and say, hey, let's plant something here. Maybe even in city trees, where if a tree has to come down, legislators can say, oh, why don't we put pollinator-friendly uh, plants here so that we're feeding the bees more? And in doing so, this is a way to measure biodiversity in action at a community-driven approach by listening to the bees. And over time, it's going to be very possible to then start to see a measurable increase in biodiversity from the plants based on the honey of these bees in our community. So we can see maybe this summer of 2022, if we keep listening to other local community area beehives, perhaps that number can be pushed up to 95 plant species. Or maybe we wanna focus on some natives and say, okay, of the total plants that we see bees pollinating on, 60% are, are non-native and 40% are native. Maybe a community wants to set a goal and say, well, we really wanna focus on these native plants or a particular type of plant or edibles or things that are culturally relevant so that we're feeding the people in our community based on this bee information too. One more thing that I'll add on this topic is in areas of natural disasters where really a large impact of climate change is focusing on greater intense, greater intensity of storms. We used Hurricane Maria as a case study where we tested honey DNA before and after the storm. And we found that native plants bounced back soonest and fastest compared to invasive species. And that's something that can really inform and empower a local community so that if we plant more native plants, we can increase our resilience against these negative impacts of climate change so that we have more plants in place to bounce back sooner. If you remember with that storm, so much of the foliage was just wiped out. We saw a very similar thing in Northern California with recent wildfires. We see native plants bouncing back faster than the invasive plants and the non-native plants too. And that's information that we're able to get because we had samples of honey before and after. So the more honey beehives that are connected to data, the more data that we will have in place so that we had a set baseline for what existed before an event occurred. And again, it's just an indicator species. So we really want to try to extrapolate that information against what other species of bees are visiting these plants and where are those species of bees nesting so that we can then promote and protect them as well. One by one, we come together, linking hands at one moment and remembering the touch of one another physically and spiritually, as our hands flow through our labor. We're linked by our common cause, moving us in synchronicity. We work as individuals, 
we work as a community. We heal ourselves and we heal with each other. Imagine the power we could have as humans if this was our reality. But it is not ours. It is the truth of the bees. As Noah Wilson Rich explains, the social dynamics of the bees are incredible. The cooperation, communication, and collective effort exhibited by bee populations serve to teach us, humans, about the power of collective action. There are lessons to be learned from the plants and animals around us. With this knowledge comes understanding, and with understanding comes empathy, and with empathy comes respect. Respect for the pollinators. Best Bees research found there is more biodiversity within the cities than in the suburbs. Not only is there scientific weight to this finding, but I also see beauty. Life in the city is not always pretty, but there is heart within the city, the heart of humanity. The cities hold an infinite number of stories defined by their heterogeneity and difference. Differences in identity, opportunity, access, and quality of life. The outdoors has become a privilege and green spaces are not accessible for many. Yet the bees are flourishing in the cities. The bees chose the cities, but we also need to choose the cities to provide pollinator-friendly green spaces for the bees and the people. Wilson Rich discusses how investments in bees are favorable across political parties. As he talked about this sentiment, I thought of how bees are not a bipartisan issue, where Republicans and Democrats are somehow meeting in the middle. This is not the middle. Working through community-driven scientific research to protect bees through a collective and governmental response is outside of the partisan debate, beyond the binary of left and right, outside of the political spectrum that we know. The solutions of many problems of today cannot be found within the bounds of the U.S. political spectrum and the debates within it. We have to think outside of what we believe to be normal and what we believe to be possible, which Wilson is starting to do. With the terrifying prospects of the future, his solutions involve community-driven science, connection, art, architecture, space travel, and more. As humans, we are natural storytellers. We share pieces of ourselves and turn a few fleeting minutes of our lives into a magical moment, something with meaning. The scientific research done at Best Bees can be translated by us into a story, the story of the bees. Sharing a story is one aspect, and now it is time we listen to the bees, to their story. In your view, what do you believe is the responsibility of the individual versus the responsibility of government in this movement of protecting the bees? Every individual has as important a role as the government does. And we can learn a really incredible lesson from a honeybee hive 
looking at the role of the worker bee, who's just one individual amongst tens of thousands, to the role of, let's say, the government of the society, because really the worker bee is there for the good of the group. And so any individual worker bee we see in a beehive actually has the power and does drive huge institutional change just from being that one individual in the same exact way that any one individual human really has the authority, has the ability to change the entire society, to change government, to change everything. It just seems impossible. So let me give you one example. With deciding where to live for a honeybee hive, that's one of the biggest decisions that they can do. And this is when a honeybee hive will swarm. And now maybe some of you have seen a swarm before. So this is something where a beehive has a baby and it's typically a basketball shape and size cloud of bees that is flying in the air looking for a new home, but they don't yet have one to go to. And that's when the population might outgrow the existing beehive, often a springtime event. And so how does that group, how does that government of a beehive decide it's time to leave? How do they coordinate that? How do they know where to go? And it's really because of these individual scout bees. Now, one individual, human or bee, has the ability to discover something new. That's really how this starts. So the role of the individual is you have to keep your mind open. So try something new. Maybe it's a new commute on the way to work. Maybe it is meeting a new friend, reading something, and just being exposed to something new. So a honeybee, typically, let's say she will be foraging at a flower, but maybe she switches up her role and she finds a hole in a tree and decides, let me inspect that. And she says, this hole would be perfect to move into. So she goes back to the nest and she communicates to them by dancing. She dances with enthusiasm called the waggle dance. And the waggle dance in honeybees was Nobel Prize winning research in the 1970s by Carl von Frisch. She shakes her butt and she communicates in a figure eight dance. And in doing so, she communicates where that hole in a tree is located. She says the quality of the hole in the tree and how far it is from the existing nest. And if she's shaking really vigorously with enthusiasm, she gets the attention of those around her. And then she stops. Those around her will headbutt her and say, we got it, you can stop now. Because even with humans, if somebody's telling us something too many times, it gets annoying. So with bees, they then stop and the other bees go to validate that. And if they go to the hole and agree, that's a really good place to move to, they'll come back and they'll start dancing and they recruit others. And eventually a consensus is reached with honeybees, they only need 5% of the nest to reach a consensus before agreeing, hey, let's do this. And that's a very efficient system. With humans, the role of an individual is really to understand that our groups, our governments, our companies, our institutions, they do have extreme value. We really need to trust in the systems. We really do need to do that. We have to understand that those systems are listening to us. I know at times it doesn't feel that way, but when we look at another social organism like honeybees that have been around for a hundred million years, and we've only been around for tens of thousands of years, we can learn a lesson there. We can understand that other social organisms have a very similar setup. 
even though they're female led and we humans haven't really gotten that point yet, <laughs> we can trust that we're going to get there. And that if we have something to say, if we found something, a new home to move to, a new direction for my company, something sustainable for the government, a way to save the bees, then if we communicate that with enthusiasm to those around us or to our policymakers or to our boss, that those people are going to listen. And it really comes down to enthusiasm and then also stop. When they tell you they've got the message, they're going to go validate it. So trust in the system that those who you as the individual human tell your message to, they're going to go validate it too. And whether they find that they agree or not, that's not up to you. If they validate it, then the system is going to eventually adopt it. If they don't validate it, it means you were off. You didn't get it right this time. People didn't agree. And that's just how the system works. So it's up to the individual to find something new. And when you found something good, communicate it with enthusiasm and then stop. Let the group do the rest. Yes. And we're all very excited. You know, we think about the future of cities and rooftop farming. And there's some other initiatives are high rise farming, not not just on the rooftops, but, you know, whole buildings. And I don't know what your thoughts are on that in terms of maintaining biodiversity. And I don't know how bees can thrive within those kind of systems. Maybe you could share your thoughts on that and whether it's possible to really change our whole food production system. Yes. So it is possible to change our entire food production system. It is necessary to do so. and while improving the human condition. We can do all of these at the same time and have a lot of fun in doing so by bringing in designers as well as architects. These were our collaborators at the MIT Media Lab. We had a wonderful few years collaborating with them. For example, when we sent bees into suborbital space on a rocket ship to really better understand the stressors of these social organisms and these bees, we were thinking about how do we replicate our hometowns in a foreign environment, what happens in a climate catastrophe when things are wiped out? What information do we have for how to recreate what was lost? And so with old samples of honey, we're able to recreate old gardens now that we have honey DNA, this genomic information of plants suspended as these maps that are hidden forever in time and the only food that doesn't spoil. When we reimagine our food system, we have to understand that the human population is growing so fast these days, and yet our available land is not. And so we must be more creative about how we use it. We must understand that we live in a built environment, and that means we are the creators of our own solutions, and we understand our problems. We understand our own nutrition. We see that nutrition is the key to longevity, both in humans as well as in bees. Our research at Best Bees continues to land on the same hypothesis, which is that good nutrition is really the key towards increased productivity and longevity for the bee lifespan. When we look at maps of our data yielding beehives with Best Bees, we see certain areas that we call blue zones or areas of increased bee longevity and bee productivity. And we take this term blue zone from areas of human health and longevity, where there are many octogenarians, people that are very long lived, like areas of Japan, areas of the Mediterranean. Everybody knows the Mediterranean diet, and we really understand the Japanese diet as well. And we think about nutrition in the same way between humans and bees. And nutrition information from bees relates to plant biodiversity. 
It's suspended in honey as the only food that doesn't spoil, waiting for humans to discover it. And for us to learn from that honey in terms of what to plant on our buildings, not just on the rooftops, but also on the walls. You know, green walls and green rooftops insulate our buildings so that we don't have to spend as much money on the HVAC, the heating and cooling, so that in the summertime, common estimates of a green rooftop is that it's 40 degrees cooler compared to its next door non-green rooftop. And we can think the same as a green wall, a curtain of, let's say, plants that are flowering and even creating food for the residents. It's not just about the food and the plant biodiversity, but it's also insulating and cooling the building in the summer against this urban heat island effect. And so because of that financial cost savings, perhaps also because of the economic benefit to having more local honey with that more local community um, identity in terms of what type of honey it is, and also in terms of the food that can be produced from a regular apartment building, these benefits are very clear. And the only thing that's standing in our way is a shift in perspective. And that's the point where I like to put my career that just requires somebody to open their minds and think, huh, okay, bees are dying, but they're doing better in urban areas. So maybe it needs to be okay to allow for urban beekeeping. And you can't have carrots on our rooftop of our apartment building. Well, why not? Maybe we could do that. Okay, I think that my kids would enjoy a play space and maybe that could be a nice amenity deck that can draw in more tenants who might wanna live here. I think as long as we keep our minds open, everything will work out. Yes, and in terms of you're talking about um, the population and I'm wondering what the, the future of pesticides is. The future of pesticides is science and the future of bees is science. The future of humanity is science and science is not a dirty word. It's something that has a process. You know, it starts with an observation in terms of the scientific method. It's something that anybody can participate in as long as one opens their eyes and minds. And so when we think about what we're seeing, there's a lot out there. We're seeing an absence of insects in the places where we might want to, such as a garden. We're seeing maybe an abundance of insects in places where farmers might not want to see them, perhaps as pests on their crops. And that observation then always leads to questions. Why are insects not where we want them? And why are they where we don't want them? And that inevitably leads to agricultural solutions that relate to pest control. So in that regard, pesticides or things that kill pests are a necessity. It's something that needs a solution. It needs hypotheses, it needs testing, it needs resources behind that in order to control the uh, risks to our food system. With that being said, there have been innovations in pesticides over recent years, such as neonicotinoid pesticides. That's a synthetic type of pesticide that is not sprayed with airplanes, like the days of you know, DDT, where we had trucks going through communities that were really exposing humans very directly to pesticides. So this idea of the neonicotinoid pesticides 
was that it was a seed coat, and it is a seed coat, so that the corn kernels, let's say, they don't look yellow or brown, they might look more green or red or brightly colored, that seed coat is taken in by the plant as it grows, and so the plant itself internally then has the pesticide in it that makes it distasteful and toxic to pesticides. Now, unfortunately, research later did show that the negative impacts were not limited to pests, but also to pollinators. And so pesticides are a very big challenge. Pesticides can and do kill bees and other pollinators. And it's something that's really important to maintain the balance, not just of our food system, but of our whole ecosystem. And we really need to understand unintended consequences. We have to understand too that, you know, for example, one time I gave a talk uh, that was invited by Virginia Tech and I was sharing data that we published with Best Bees and the Harvard School of Public Health back in 2013, showing that honeybee halves do accumulate all types of pesticides, including these synthetic neonicotinoids. And the team at Virginia Tech said to me, Noah, you really need to be careful because if the industry takes off these advanced pesticides from the market, we're going to have to go back to the days of DDT and to when things were much, much more toxic. And so it's a very fine balance and there's many benefits to organic farming. And there's also many challenges there as well. Yeah, so as you've talked about your research, it's clear your work is extremely interdisciplinary. And so with that, what was an aspect of your research that was out of your comfort zone or unexpected? Working with the MIT Media Lab and Neri Oxman's group was really inspirational in many ways, in part because we worked with bees, and yet I was the only bee scientist there. And there were many projects at the Media Lab that related to bees, and often my phone would ring, and they would say, okay, we're going to do things like send bees to space, now what? <laughs> I would think, what? <laughs> what are we doing? And it was really, really amazing to keep my mind opened and to shape my perspective of the world in a way that was not limited to a discipline, like to biologists or to beekeepers, but really to work with architects and designers to think outside the box. And one of my favorite projects was called the Synthetic Apiary. And it's currently on exhibit with Neri Oxman's retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco. It was relating to the Tokyo Olympics at the time with Mori Construction as a wonderful funder to it. We were looking at Neri's work where she designed and invented a 3D printer that worked with glass. And she was designing an Olympic pavilion made out of 3D printed glass so that visitors to the Tokyo Olympics could experience almost like the bird's nest of the 2008 Beijing Games. But of course, this is 2020 Tokyo where visitors could walk into the pavilion made of all glass and see bees flying around and making fresh honey inside the walls and perhaps even pull a lever, let's say, to collect honey. So it was an edible pavilion in a way and to see the human architectural wonders next to the bees' architectural wonders of their amazing engineering feats with the hexagonal shapes and honeycomb to understand the strength of the hexagon and why do bees make a hexagon and not a square or a circle or a triangle to understand the surface area to volume ratio of a hexagon in a shape that tessellates on a flat plane. So all of the wonders of the natural world, like in engineering and design and architecture, 
culture in a way that was also edible, in a way that also helped one taste the genome of our local environment. This is what our community tastes like. Welcome to Tokyo. And for that pavilion to then be melted down afterwards, being glass, in a completely sustainable way that left no footprint. You had to be there to experience it. So that project was amazing. We continued it on into space as the synthetic apiary too, but I will just share that the bees hated it. <laughs> and the project did not continue on to the Tokyo Olympics. It was very strange for them not to share how the bees maybe felt because they're not sentient beings, so to speak. But that was a very interesting learning experience. And I would also say a lesson in failure because the bees really did not want to build much beeswax comb in our trials there. They wanted to stay in their own beehive. Well, it sounds like a, a beautiful project. You've certainly, your um, enthusiasm and your knowledge is infectious. And so it's it really opens our eyes to a lot of possibilities. And I just love how you're working, not just on Vespies, but this whole collaborative approach with all these initiatives. And people think about a fear of swarms or, you know, killer bees, you know, just talk a little bit about that misconceptions and what we should know about that. There are misconceptions about bees, for sure. Now, killer bees, that is something that began around the 1950s. There, as the story goes, a researcher in Brazil brought over some honeybees from Africa to test hypotheses relating to those bees being good honey producers and very docile. The, the story goes again, the particular bees turned out to be neither. They were not great honey producers and they tended to be a bit aggressive. And the queens escaped into the Amazon. And in the years since the 1950s, those bees started to establish locally and then spread further north. And at the time, Hollywood bee movies, so to speak, were picking up on the story. And uh, there was a lot of hype. The killer bees are coming. And a lot of people began to fear bees. Combine that with the limited knowledge of people around all of the different species of insects out there and how many insects look alike. It really made people afraid of bees. And it made people not learn more about them because when one is running for dear life and flailing hands and swatting at anything saying it's a bee, that person is likely not pausing to take a look at what they're running from and to think that's actually not a bee at all. That doesn't look like a bee. And so bees get a bad rap for many reasons. And ever since the 1950s, those bees were making their way up north through Central America. And in the 1990s, they established themselves in the southern United States below the frost line. And I'll say, as with many invasive species that tend to come from the tropics, they tend to be more aggressive because they're more predators in the tropics. And as I say, the predators ate the nice bees a long time ago in evolutionary history. Now, with winter and the frost, that tends to kill off invasive tropical organisms. And so winter is a little bit of a reset button against invasive species. And as climate change continues to push the boundaries of the frost line, we see more invasive species spreading. And so I think it's important to understand the value of understanding community ecology at the hyper-local level to understand, well, what is native to our community? What's established? What's been here for a very long time? What's not native? 
And, you know, even in graduate school, for me, I was at Tufts University in the Boston area. We spent years understanding the different vocabulary words for invasion biology and to understand, you know, honeybees have been around the United States for 400 years. They are no longer invasive. They are established. They're not spreading anywhere. So they're not native, although not an invasive species, so to speak, like many other ones are. It's very important to understand that bees are not aggressive, that they are vegan by nature. They don't have to kill their food to eat like their cousins do. The yellow jackets, the hornets, the wasps, those are all meat eaters. And if we think about Jurassic Park as an example with those movies, when you see the kids petting the vegetarian dinosaurs and running from the meat eaters, it's in a very similar fashion. And with beekeepers, they don't want to be stung either. And so for us at Best Bees, I always say aggressive things is a bad business model. We want to only work with what's already in the environment. We're breeding our local bees. We have a wonderful queen rearing program. So we're, we're working with what's locally adapted. And that's how we keep things safe and appropriate for a local environment. Yes, it's good that you dispel some of those fears and misconceptions. And I want to go into the two things. I don't fully understand what creates like feral bees and I don't know better ways of beekeeping that could avoid that. But I also want to, I'm wondering what you're like as a young person, as a child that we know when you first got excited about the subject. So there are so many different types of bees out there. And one of the fun parts of a book I wrote with Princeton University Press called The Bee and Natural History was chapter six. We called it The Bee Directory. And it was a wonderful tour of bees around the world and all of these unusual species, such as the domino cuckoo bee, which was a black bee with white spots, um, and a teddy bear bee, which was kind of a golden color with green eyes. I believe both are found in Australia. It's a way that we can use bees to help us visit communities on the other side of the planet. And so when we think about feral bees and domesticated bees and wild bees and what I call these cryptic species that are kind of hidden and we don't know where they are, these are opportunities for us, I think, to really learn about biodiversity, but a little bit about ourselves even. So with honeybees, those are they're domesticated creatures, especially in the Americas where honeybees are not native. In Africa and Asia and Europe, honeybees are native, and so they are not necessarily all um, domesticated. Some are just wild. In the Americas, where there are honeybee hives that are not managed, those would be considered feral because they were brought here and then escaped and then established, and say, in a hole in a tree. And so there are many different words that we use to describe the type of a nest that might be found. And they're all very interesting and help us just notice and increase our awareness and open our perspectives. And I have to say that as a child, as a wee young Noah, I was born in Manhattan and I grew up in Fairfield, Connecticut. It was a beautifully wooded area. And I would often play with my friends and escape into the woods and just kind of explore and see what we could find. I would also spend a lot of time in New York City. And my cousin Joshua went to a school that had a rooftop playground and I would visit and play up there. And it was amazing to see this huge fence. I'm sure it's not as large now that I'm an adult, but as a kid, this fence was so large and it would catch any stray balls, like, you know, kickball, so it wouldn't fly off the tall rooftop. I remembered looking out onto the, all the other rooftops in New York City and think, do those kids have better playgrounds? 
How tall are those fences? Do they have swing sets? What do those look like? And as an adult, I, my disappointment I mean, will never leave for understanding that not only do those rooftops not have better playgrounds, but they have nothing. And I have to say nothing angers nor inspires me more than to look out over any city and see nothing on the rooftops because we know this will change. We know it's open habitat and all that we have to do is plant something. And I'm inspired by other companies out there these days, not just with Best Bees putting nesting sites out, but also some gardens that we're doing too in some cities. Companies like Columbia Green or Recover Green Rooftops or Green City Growers. These are urban farming companies. These are companies that are selling squares of green rooftops so you don't have to go all out at once. You can really start small and create this habitat and to be the change that we see for all these types of bees as well as for all of us. And for all the kids who are out there, we're really expecting more from those rooftops and from us. Yeah, that is incredible to think about the future of what cities could look like. So can you describe your visceral reaction to thinking about the future of bees? Well, when thinking about the future of bees, I'm honestly really scared. I'm really concerned because I know that we humans understand that food doesn't come from the grocery store. We know where food comes from, and we know that everybody appreciates innovation. We all love a wow moment. We love to have our minds opened up, to feel inspired, to taste something new, to have our senses tickled, and to share that, especially with kids. You know, one of our near and dear clients, I really have so much love for. I've got Sunny Hostin and Whoopi Goldberg from The View. We love them so much, and they really connect with family over their bees because they can see the wonder that comes you know, from a grandchild's eyes coming up to connect and say, can we taste some honey? How are the bees doing? It's something that everybody connects with across the political spectrum. We saw the Obamas bring bees to the White House and the Trumps kept them. And then the Mike Pence administration brought bees to the vice presidential residence at the Naval Observatory and the Harris's kept them as well. We see that bees are really an ultimately bipartisan issue because it comes down to food for our next generation. We want to eat healthy as much as we want for our kids to do it too, even more so for the kids. And so I think if not for us, then for the children, if we're not doing it for our own families and for our own companies, then we understand the assets that we hold with our real estate, whether it's our homes, our landscapes, or the buildings that companies own, or the campuses that companies work at. These are all assets that we are stewards of. And when we do the right thing for us and for our kids and for our assets, we then start to extend that past, okay, what's in it for me, but what's really the best thing to do for the, the broader environment? So I'm hopeful, even though I'm scared, I am resentful when people dismiss the ideas of growing carrots on an apartment building rooftop because I know they don't mean that. I think it's easier to say no than it is to say yes at times, especially in times of fear, especially in times of limited resources. But here's the trick. 
there are so many resources right under our noses. We just haven't noticed them yet. Whether they're empty walls, whether they're empty rooftops, or a shady patch of grass or an abandoned patch on the side of the road that we can throw some seeds on uh, called seed bombing. You can make seed bombs with little kids. So I think that there's so many opportunities out there for us to do better. I know that we will. And I, I look forward to the future, even if I'm scared. Yes. As you mentioned, bees are venerated by some cultures. And you know, just talk about some of the, the religious or spiritual or mythological stories that have been attributed to bees. Yes. Yeah, so chapter four of the Bee and Natural History really is a great deep dive into the religious and spiritual and cultural relevance of bees, all the way from patron saints in Christianity relating to bees, such as St. Valentine and St. Patrick, to stories from the Quran, where there's a deep history with honey. And even today, for those in Iran and Persia, there are wonderful honey sellers. And it's very common to see a store that just sells many different types of honeys. And, you know, as a scientist, I can't wait to be able to test some of those to find the plant DNA in them to help add vocabulary words to the flavors that we're tasting. I think that's such a wonderful way that science can add value to the human experience already, where there's such a long shared history with honey. And yet today we're still using the same one word to describe that experience and that relevancy too. You know, certainly with Judaism as well, as a third example, we think about Rosh Hashanah in, in September as a wonderful, sweet new year ahead when we can all eat honey. So there's always relevance there too. And it's just a wonderful tie that binds across the entire world, all cultures, even thinking about in Mexico where they work with a type of stingless bee called melipona. It's very common in Mexican kitchens in the windowsill to have a little beehive that has these stingless bees coming and going and storing nectar so that anytime a family wants some honey, they can just scoop some right out. So everywhere you go, there's always more to discover. Yeah, it's it's a really, I can see why it is your uh, chosen field because it's really endless and it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful world. So, you know, in closing, as you, we're all thinking about the future, pollinator decline, bees, climate change. Do you think about that? What were some important life lessons for you? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? You know, one thing that has guided me throughout my life is the scientific method. And it's something that every science class starts with in the first of the year. I remember as a student over and over again, we would learn that scientific method and it felt so boring to me at the time. But as an adult, as a professional, as a scientist, as a CEO, this informs my life perspective because it gives me a method of inquiry, a way to ask questions. So for any kids out there, my advice is always to ask questions. It's so important that we feel comfortable and confident in ourselves to say, well, what is that? Why is that? What's happening? But even to go a step back, to process what we're feeling and thinking. So even if we just take a nature walk, the importance of seeing leaves and processing that, what color does it look like? What shape is it? Does this look like something you've seen before? And then asking some questions about it. And the fun part then starts with trying to answer those questions. Whatever you think the answer is, that's your hypothesis, especially if you can test it and if you can prove it false, then you can really have some fun and you can even bring your friends in there too. 
getting later in your career, when I give talks to kids, I love to share with them how I started my business. You know, it was just through social media and anybody can do it. And so anytime somebody's been picked on as a kid for knowing too much about something, whatever makes a kid a nerd or, a, you know, stand out too much, it's because they know a little bit too much about something. Maybe they're standing out for the way they look, for an interest that they have, but as an adult to stand out, that's what makes you bankable. That's what makes you special. That's what gives you a role in society. And if somebody asks you about that thing, you know, why do you look different from everybody else? Why are you interested in Pokemon? If you charge $1 for an answer, you are in business as a consultant and you don't need any money or any experience or resources to start that. You can start a Facebook page and call it the Noah Wilson Rich Consultancy <laughs> for, for people who have a question for a kid who stands out you know, or who looks weird, whatever it is, there are ways that the scientific method can give you structure, structure and strength that can lead you all the way from how to understand the world better to how to bide your time to how to start a business. Those are all great lessons that we learned from you and the B world. And thank you for some of your insights into how to work within systems, outside of systems, create your own systems. Uh, it's all very inspiring. Thank you, Noah Wilson-Rich, for your infectious passion and curiosity in helping us understand the fundamental role bees play in sustaining life on this planet through your research and Best Bees citizen science initiatives that help us halt pollinator decline, for reminding us that when we understand bees, we understand ourselves. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Yan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Sydney Field with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Sydney Field. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.